So we are moving this week from the, the first two chapters were motivating us to go further into the study. Now we're actually beginning to get into the work of considering God, considering what God has revealed of Himself to us. That's, that's what this study is. Now, before we do that, I want to read some texts of Scripture. And this reasoning is taken from a book called The Marrow of Theology by William Ames. It was the sort of the theological textbook of the early Americas for, for a, a hundred years or so. Many of the great minds that we appreciate from early American history, especially in the theological realm like Jonathan Edwards and others, um, and even some from over the seas, uh, used uh, William Ames' book, Marrow of Theology. It's like a textbook. If you read it, you would think, how in the world does anybody uh, follow this man's line of thinking? The way that they expected uh, theological students to think back then was far beyond our standards. But several texts of Scripture. The first is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, which just reminds us of the object of our meditations. God, here He is described as He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now the the text describes God as dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man can see or has seen or can see. And I and and what Ames the way Ames sort of uses this text is that's not that's not just physical. It's not simply that we can't physically see a God because He dwells in this unapproachable light. But, but with all of the faculties that have been given to us, whether it be the physical eyes, whether it be our heart, our affections, the, the inner man, the soul, the mind, whatever, however you want to describe everything that we've been given as human beings, if we, if we, put, if we could gather all of that up and exercise it in the direction of God... In, in one laser-focused aim of trying to contemplate God, we can't fully perceive Him. We cannot comprehend Him. As it was said to Moses in Exodus 33:23, "You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen." And if that was said of Moses before whom it seems God literally passed by in a, in a physical, visible uh, manifestation of His glory, how much more, or how I should say how much less, can we truly expect to apprehend of this God? As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly the very best light that we might have with the Scriptures, fully illuminated by the Holy Spirit, using all of our minds, 
we're still looking dimly. We're looking through as if it were a foggy glass beholding God. Turn with me to Job chapter 26. Job 26 verses 5 through 14. The departed spirits tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him, and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. Think about it, a cloud. What is a cloud? It's water. How, it, how does it... How does it, is not just constant rain. How does it not fall? You throw water up in the sky, it comes back down. He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. He quieted the sea with his power and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his breath, the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. And how faint a word we hear of him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? The point here is is that after we have traced out every mighty work or act of God, after we have if we could find out all that is to be found, after we had found out all that is to be found, after we have seen all that there is to see, it would be as if God had merely whispered in our ears. It will be as if He had passed by and we turned and only caught the last glimpse of His robe before it vanished. Enough to know that He's there, that He's mighty, that He's wonderful, that He's beyond our comprehension, and no more. Ames comments, Many things are spoken of God according to our own conceiving rather than according to His real nature. We cannot know Him otherwise as we live now. Now that would be, that could, could lead us into pessimism. We, we can't know Him any other way. As in our current condition, the way we are, because of who He is, there's only a certain limit to our knowledge, and that's all we'll get. He says, we cannot know Him otherwise as we live now, but then He goes on, nor do we need to know Him otherwise to live well. We have, and I've said this and I'll keep saying this, we have all of the revelation of God that we need and in some, more than we can ever take in in order to live the way that God has called us to live. In order to make, us, make it through this life, we have everything. God has revealed all that we need. And, and as I said several weeks ago, this, this seeking God, this studying the Scriptures to know God, it's not a wild goose chase. But we have to also understand that when we get to the end of it, we will not, listen, 
you will not feel accomplished. When we get finished with the book, and we go to the next book, and we go to the next, and the next, and the next, and the next, the only accomplishment is we finish the book. You won't say, there, I, I think I've got my mind wrapped around it. The, the further that you go into studying the incomprehensible nature of God, the attributes that we'll see, most of them are described in the negative, right? Infinite, immutable, impassable. They're all negative. They're telling us what God is not. Because all we have to work with is what we understand. And, and God is completely other, wholly outside of our understanding. Yet He has revealed Himself in a condescending way, as Ames says, spoken according to our own conceiving. This language, English, Spanish, uh, Latin, whatever language a, a culture might use, all of it. It's condescension. He's spoken to us in a way to fitted for our conceiving rather than according to His real nature. Even from the Scriptures, inspired by the Spirit, God has, He can't communicate in human language the fullness of His nature because it can't be spoken. So just let that prepare us. Um, you know... Unmet expectations are, are the cause of many trials and troubles. If you think, well, by the end of this book, then I'll really have this figured out. No, you won't. You won't. I, I regularly pick up books and I, I, I read and I find out I know nothing. I know nothing. So, I also want to say this before we jump into this chapter. The doctrine of God is under attack in our day by people who say that they confess the same doctrines we do. Now, when I say it's under attack, I don't mean that the people that I, that I would be referencing are strategically trying to attack and tear down and destroy the Christian God, but they say things, write things, promote things that, that will uh, come in from, from underneath or from around the rear, and they can erode away what the Bible teaches about God. This gives us the occasion in our day to be more specific, more accurate, and more clear than ever. In other words, we need to be that. This is not the time for sloppy language when it comes to articulating the doctrine of God. Now, the book that we're using is not meant to be a theological textbook. It's not... It's not written to be, you know, um, theology proper 301 or 401, however high you could go up in your college courses for uh, seminary level, uh, doctorate level students. It's not written that way. It's, it's meant to be uh, on a, in a very accessible, easy to read, easy to follow uh, level. And so there are places and there might be times when I have to say, okay, here's what he says. Let me clarify a little bit. Let me go a little bit further and articulate this better. So, and some of the stuff I'll have to do tonight. So, let's let's look at the uh, let's look at this chapter three. God is one. 
and 3. I feel obligated to say something just about that phrase. I'm not sure that I would say it that way. But we'll, we'll, we'll move on. The, the subheading is, under this first section, is God is one. God is one. It is the testimony of the Scriptures that there is only one true God. The belief in one God is termed monotheism. Mono meaning one, theos meaning God. We, we believe in only one God. While the belief in more than one God is polytheism. The Christian faith is monotheistic. Now I want you to notice this, the, the opening subtitle, God is one. That's a statement about God. The nature of God. You can think in the, in, in just, in the language. God is who are we talking about? We're talking about God. Then, just underneath that, he says, there is only one God. Now, this may not need to be brought forth as a distinction, other than that it, it, it is a good opportunity for us to draw upon this distinction. Two different doctrines. There is only one God is a statement about reality. There, there, there is. God is. See how those are different. In one statement I'm talking about God. In one statement I'm talking about there, reality. In reality, in the universe that is, there is only one God. The other side God is one. Now, if that's if there's if you're not seeing the distinction yet, we'll, we'll move further. In re, in reality, the universe that is, as it pertains to true gods, there is only one of them. The reason I, I do that is to say this: there are two different ways to think regarding the notion of the oneness of God. If we want to use that terminology of oneness, one deals with the inner being and essence of God. God is in Himself one. The other statement deals with the way things are in God's universe. There are or there is only one God in this universe. And that God is in His essence one. Two different, two different things. Both are true. But debates about the doctrine of God are at a level right now where, number one, we cannot afford to be confusing. I don't want to be confusing. If I'm confusing right now, sorry. That's not what I'm trying to be. We, we can't afford to be confusing. But number two, that God is one, namely, the singularity of His essence or being must be upheld in our day. This must be upheld. God is one. Not merely that there's only one God. Jews believe that. There are many religions that are monotheistic. We are also monotheistic. The difference is we also believe in something which I'm calling the oneness of God, that God in His being is one. And I think that could even deserve its own study. Just God is one. I wish I had the capacity to, to do that. 
attributes like aseity and simplicity are at stake. If we don't nail down this reality, God is one. That's why when we have statements like God is one and three, let's make one sentence. God is one. Okay, and then let's make a different sentence about however we want to begin to talk about the Trinity uh, because we, we do want to talk about the Trinity, but we need to clarify, make sure we understand what it means that God is one. I will continue to point out this distinction in this chapter and even some things that I think can and should be clarified or stated more clearly. Now, the first text that is mentioned here is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And we can look at that one together, which I, I think most of us know it. Seen it, Deuteronomy 6, 4. This is a part of what's known as the Shema. We might consider this as the very first creed, the very first creed of belief or confession of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God... The Lord is one, or you might have, the Lord is one Lord. It makes no difference. But notice in that statement, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the nature of God or are we talking about the nature of reality? Well, it says the Lord is one. It doesn't say there's only one. It says the Lord is one Lord. He, he is only one. A, a statement about strict Yes, monotheism, but also about the nature of the God who is. In the face of the polytheistic world in which the Israelites lived, they came out of Egypt, everyone around them was polytheistic, they were going into the land of Canaan, all of those nations believed in many gods and had multiple gods. It was important, and I think it is assumed and implied in this text, that they realized there's only one God. All of these other gods are not gods at all. That is important. I, do, I don't believe that that's not here, but I think it goes further. The text does not read, the Lord is the only one there is. Here, O Israel, the Lord is the only one there is. No, it says, the Lord is one. The God who is, is a God who is in Himself one. One. Now, very often... We want to jump as Christians, as Trinitarians. We want to say that quickly, there's only one God, and then jump straight to Father, Son, and Spirit. Because we know that it's in the, the work of Father, Son, and Spirit, especially the Son and especially the Spirit, that we, that we begin to take note of the application or the outworking of redemption and salvation, the application of redemption for us. It's the same with the Gospel. Very often we want to jump straight to Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Okay, That doesn't mean anything to anybody if they don't understand why their sins are a problem. That's, that's not good news to me if I think sin is good. right? We begin with God. People have to understand who God is. Then they will be able to appreciate and understand why the good news is so good. Well, it's the same with the, 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 the nature of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the outworking of redemption and the application of redemption. Those things are good, they are good, but we have to be careful not to jump so fast to them because it, it does bless us in, in particular ways that we forget or we, we begin to blur the reality of the oneness of God. I think I said this yesterday with the men. Very often, 
We might picture God and with regard to the Trinity in this way. If we want to use the language of unapproachable light, I'm, I'm imagining if I were looking at this unapproachable light, I can't get close to it, I can't comprehend it, but I know that this unapproachable light, that, that, is, that is the essence of God. And the way that we picture the, the doctrine of the Trinity is that maybe if I, if I come to the side a little bit and look this way, I'll see actually three. And there's, so there's three in that one God. Or if I, if I could get a little closer inside that unapproachable light, I would see three smaller lights inside of that unapproachable light. It, we we want to jump to that. We, 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 we don't want to settle on the fact that no, that is, that the unapproachable light, if we're, if we're picturing this as, as the essence of God, that is God. He's one. And if I come to this side, I see one. And if I look closer, I see one. The doctrine of the Trinity does not alter or change or affect in any way the oneness of God. He is only one. The whole essence of the Godhead, and, and I'm not taking the time to define these terms, but the whole essence of God is the Father. And the Father is or has the whole essence. The whole essence is the Son. And the Son is the whole essence. The whole essence is the Spirit. And the Spirit is the whole essence. There's only one God. The Lord our God is one He's not divided. He's not seen as three in a a different light or a different angle or up close or farther away. He is one. Now let me read to you a quote from Herman Bavink. I should have marked my page. I wrote down the page number. 298 in his work on the doctrine of God. Listen, this is a long quote, but follow. Just as the gods of polytheism are similar in nature, but not same in nature or one in nature, so also human individuals are not only distinct, but also separate. The same cannot be affirmed with reference to God. Here it goes. The divine nature is not a mere general concept. Neither is it something that exists separate from, above, and next to the persons. The divine nature, the essence of the, of the Godhead, does not exist separate from, above, or next to the persons. The persons being the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. On the contrary, not only is it present in the persons, but in each of these it is totally and numerically the same. The essence of the Godhead, the the essence of God Himself is in the Father, in the Son, in the Spirit, in all three, 
totally and numerically the same. Not divided amongst them, not spread out, not moving in between them back and forth. Hence, the persons of the Trinity are distinct, but not separate. Now think about that. The persons of the Trinity are distinct, but not separate. They are, quote, the same in essence, one in essence, consubstantial, end quote. Neither space nor time nor anything else separates them. They all partake of the same divine nature and attributes. One and the same divine nature is present in each person individually and all collectively. Hence, in God, there is one eternal, omnipotent, omniscient nature. There is in God one mind, one will, one energy. The term being or essence indicates God's unity. Emphasized throughout Scripture, maintained by monotheism, that's us, and defended by Unitarianism. People who don't believe in the Trinity, but they still believe in one God. They, even they would defend this. No matter what distinctions are present within the divine being, the unity of God's essence can never be abrogated, for in God, that unity is not imperfect and finite, but complete and absolute. Among creatures... Distinctions necessarily indicate manyness, division, separateness. Creatures exist side by side. They follow one another in space and time. But eternity, omnipresence, omnipotence, goodness, etc. do not admit of partition and distribution. God is absolute unity and simplicity without any composition or division and that unity is not contractual or ethical as among men but absolute. It is not accidental but essential to God's being. Now in, in, in theological language in, in the way these terms are being used. Um, an accident is not like stumping your toe. An accident is something that might exist in me that if it were, if it were not there, I would still be a human being. For example, I am uh, a human by nature, but an accident is that I have brown hair. If I had blonde hair, or if somebody in here has blonde hair, that doesn't mean you're not a human being or that you don't have the, the human nature. You, you are a human nature, but you, an accident about you is that you have blonde hair, I have brown hair. What, what this is saying is this, this absolute unity and oneness in God, it's not accidental. It's not just like it happens to be there, but if it weren't there, He would still be God. No, this is essential to who He is. Absolutely essential to God that He is one in His essence. God is one. Listen to these texts. John 10, 30. This is, and, and this actually takes into account the, the concept of the Trinity. This one and the next one. Jesus says, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. John 14, verses 8 to 10. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus, Jesus, where to get that name from his mother, born in Nazareth, that man, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Or Galatians 3.30, God is one. God is one. Listen to some of these statements from the Athanasian Creed. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. Their, plural, essence, one. They have one essence, one God. God is one. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is Almighty, the Son is Almighty, the Holy Spirit is Almighty, yet there are not three Almighties. There is but one Almighty being. There can't be three Almighties. There can't be two Almighties. There can only be one Almighty, having all might, all power. If there were two, one of them has to be more powerful than the other. There can only be one. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. One God. And that God is one. Again, the reason that I emphasize this is that very often, even though we are Trinitarians, we are Trinitarians, in our thinking And even in our theology and in our theological explanations, we can sometimes drift into a kind of tri-theism or some other concepts, concepts that are not according to the truth. Ironically, in our hurry to get to Trinitarianism, to get to an explanation of the three persons, to get to an explanation usually of the divinity of Christ, we steamroll over the true implications of the oneness of God. We eventually say things that if they are left to their logical conclusions would move us out of the realm of monotheism. If you, if you begin to say things that make the man Jesus in, in the incarnation, the, the way that he is now, true man and true God, in, in some way opposed to or contrary to the Father or the Spirit, you begin, but then you also argue for the divinity of Christ. Well, then you are you're, you're moving towards at least by theism to gods, or maybe Christ is a lesser God. You have to be very careful. Listen to this quote from a man named Liam Gallagher. 
in himself, speaking of God, in himself, he is incomprehensible. This should give us pause for thought before we make any univocal connections between God and ourselves. This should give us pause for thought before we make any univocal connections between God and ourselves. We must remind ourselves that there is a category difference between God and His creation. God does not belong to reality as we conceive of it. A a univocal connection is implying that something in God is the same as something in us. Why is that important? Notice the note in the workbook. There is only one true God. This is the foundation stone of the Old Testament and the New Testament faith. It is important to understand that the word one comes from the Hebrew word echad, which often refers to a unity of more than one person. Now we've been discussing unity in the church. First Corinthians, unity. So when, I, when, when you hear a unity of more than one person, what first comes to mind? Typically, that multiple individuals are coming together to form a united whole. There's a unity. More than one person coming together. That's what he just said. A unity of more than one person. If somebody doesn't come or if somebody doesn't refuse to come, we have a group of people who are, are uh, schismatic, they're going off on their own, well then there's not unity. The, the, the unity wouldn't, come to, wouldn't be there. Without the parts coming together, the unity wouldn't exist. Now that idea is completely contrary to the concept of the unity in the Godhead. And this is why we have to be careful. And notice what is said next. For example, in Genesis 2.24, we read, quote, They, i.e. the man and the woman, shall become one flesh. And in Ezra 3.1, the people gathered together as one man. This truth will have great importance in the next section where we will explore what it means that the one true God exists as Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, think about this. The man and the woman come together as two separate beings to form one flesh. If either party doesn't comply, they do not become one flesh. And yet they both remain intact as complete separate individuals. Okay? The other illustration, the people in Jerusalem, they were all individuals by themselves. They were not as, quote, one man until they all came together. And so the one man concept existed only because the gathering of all of those separate parts who would have been fine if they would have stayed separate. They weren't less than themselves. They all came together as one man. Again, it usually refers to a unity of more than one person. But again, in Deuteronomy 6.4, we do not read, the Lord our God, the Lord became one. The Lord our God, the Lord gathered together as one Lord. It doesn't say that. It says, the Lord our God is one. He is one. No gathering, no becoming, no, no, no bringing together of separate parts. God as Trinity and unity is not formed by a gathering of three persons. <clears throat> God is not made of parts in any sense of the term. The doctrine of the Trinity and unity is completely outside the realm of creaturely patterns. 
<clears throat> I don't say any of this again to, to pick on Paul Washer or in any way try to show an upper hand on him theologically to cast aspersion on his ministry or on this book or to imply that he is trying to espouse a particular Trinitarian heresy. Again, I think he's trying to be simple. I think he's trying to be accessible. I think he's trying to set up the stage for the Trinity that will come. I have heard that he takes the wrong position on the doctrine of the eternal subordination of the Son and that controversy, if you know anything about it. But I don't know that for sure, but I know that that controversy is swimming in statements just like this one, as we'll see. I'll go back to Gulliger's statement. God does not belong to reality as we conceive it. God does not belong to reality as we conceive it. This should give us pause for thought before we make any univocal connection between God and ourselves. We don't look at God and say, see, God's like that. It's kind of like when we all get together. No, it's not. It's not at all like when we all get together. He is one. That's not, it's not the same for us. And we have to be very careful in the way that we, we say these things. The next text is Deuteronomy 4.39. <clears throat> Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. Now, now this text is about the reality of the world in which we live. There is only one God. There is no other. And I love the terseness of statements like these in the Scriptures. <clears throat> he is God. The Lord, He is God. Not a God, not the greatest of all gods. He is God. In heaven above, earth below. The entire created order. What you can see and what you can't see. God is there, ruling. There's only one God. Stated, stated negatively, there is no other. Positively speaking, over all that is not God, there is one God. There is no created sphere in which another God is or can be. And we're to take it to heart. Take it to your heart. The belief in the one true living God of the Scriptures must be firmly rooted in the deepest part of our heart and mind. In other words, know it, believe it, keep it, settle it. It's a matter beyond dispute or question. It's like the, the doctrine of the infallibility and the truthfulness of Scriptures. It's not up for debate. It's not, we're not questioning this. I'm not talking about it. God is one, and there's no other. We're not talking about it. We're not discussing it. I'm not here for an exchange. It's not to be questioned. God is one. And there are no other gods. There's only one. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11 is also referenced. Isaiah 43, 10, but I'll include verse 11 because it states the same truth. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. And it says so that you may know and believe and understand. They're not put forth as commands or really suggestions, but rather this is the reasoning behind God's saving activity. You're my servant whom I've chosen, so that you may know <clears throat> and believe and understand. 
God has acted for us so that we can know Him and believe in Him and live in light of Him, understand Him. That's what the passage is saying. Some other text that I, I think he, yeah, he gives us Isaiah 45, 18. And I'll just read these. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Isaiah 41, 21. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Psalm 86.10, For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. 1 Corinthians 8.4, We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world but there is, and that there is no God but one. James 2.19, <clears throat> You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Ephesians 4, 4-6, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father over all, Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. <clears throat> 1 John 5, 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, Romans three thirty. since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. God is one. So what does this require of us? The next text in the, in the workbook, the two texts that really point to the same thing. I'll read them both. The first is from Exodus 20, verses 2 to 6. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And how could we? There's only one. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And why shouldn't He be? He's the only one. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. What do we learn here? Our worship must be exclusively devoted to the one God. That's the first commandment. The second commandment is not a repetition of the first commandment. The second commandment is talking about how we worship. How we worship God. We are not to worship that one God in any way other than He has prescribed. We are not allowed to make images or any, any visible thing. Anything, it, it, the language is in heaven above or the earth beneath the water at the end of the earth. Basically, anything that you could possibly conceive in your mind, you are not to make anything like that that you can conceive of your mind and then use that as a means to worship that one God. No, we only worship Him in the way that He has commanded, the way that He's revealed Himself, and He's not revealed Himself according to any image, anything that we can see. To do so would imply that we may worship the one God as if He were other than Himself. Right? To worship Him as if He were other than than 
himself. This is the, one of the great issues with pictures of Christ. Who is that man in that picture? Well, that's Jesus. The Christ of the Bible is true God and true man. That looks like a picture of a man. Well, yeah, but you, you know. No, I don't know. That's not the Christ of the Bible. You want us, me, to think, to worship, to adore the Christ of the Bible as if He were something other than He is? Well, that wouldn't be right. That would be idolatry. That's the, the, the historic argumentation. That's what the second commandment means. And then, of course, Mark 12, 28 to 30 is Christ's uh, vindication or verification of these same truths. One of the scribes came and heard him arguing, them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, we should reserve the fullness of our love and our adoration for the one and only God. God is one. And there's only one God. Those are two different things, two different truths that we have to uphold. And I want to, the reason that I wanted to emphasize the oneness of God is because we're going to move next week into the Trinity very quickly. We'll talk about the deity of the Son, the deity of the Spirit, and then we'll go into the attributes of God. But listen, in a study of the attributes of God, really, we could, we could still be good Trinitarian Christians and not even consider the Trinity, the, the, the Son and the Spirit, and, and that, that doctrine. We could just talk about the oneness of God, all of these attributes which are about this one God, then at the very end come back and say, now all that we just said, it's the same for the Son and the Spirit. It's the same. It's not changed. It's not different. Why? Because they're not different gods. They're not in addition to Him. They are Him. The Son is Him. The Spirit is Him. The Father is Him. That's who He is. The closer you get, the closer you get, the more you see it. There's only one. Let's pray.